Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, August 17th. In today's news, Democrats will juggle hundreds of live feeds to try creating the feel of a traditional convention. The number of coronavirus cases in children is surging, and Death Valley soars to 130 degrees, potentially Earth's highest temperature ever. But first, the big idea. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced on Sunday that she is calling the House back early from its summer recess to vote on legislation this weekend that would block changes to Postal Service operations. And the House Oversight Committee has scheduled an emergency hearing for next Monday on mail delays and concerns about potential White House interference in the Postal Service. They've invited Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and Postal Service's Board of Governors Chairman Robert Duncan to testify at that hearing. The growing public outcry has led to a number of Republican lawmakers facing tough re-election fights, especially in rural states, distancing themselves from President Trump's frontal assault on the popular system. For example, on Sunday, Senator Steve Daines, the Republican from Montana, wrote a letter pleading with the administration to reverse the policy changes that have slowed down the mail for his constituents, citing the heavy reliance of small businesses, veterans, and seniors on the mail. Many of his elderly constituents, for example, depend on the mail to get prescriptions, and they've already begun to experience problems getting critically needed medicine. And Senator Mitt Romney, the Utah Republican who voted to remove Trump from office for abuse of power, said this weekend that it's clear the president does not want people to vote by mail because polls show that those who want to vote by mail prefer Joe Biden, and people who tend to want to vote in person prefer President Trump. Romney said it's, quote, a purely political calculation. Tens of thousands of voters have been calling government offices in recent days to ask whether it's still safe to mail their ballots. Attorneys general from at least six states had conference calls all weekend to discuss possible lawsuits against the administration to block it from reducing mail service between now and the election. State leaders are scrambling to see whether they can change rules to give voters more options. Democrats are planning a massive public education campaign to shore up trust in the vote in the Postal Service. More than 180 million Americans are now eligible to vote by mail in the fall after many states relaxed their rules. States that have embraced universal mail voting have documented tiny rates of ballot fraud, despite the president's claims to the contrary. Voting advocates and Democrats accuse the president of intentionally sowing chaos and confusion, just as election offices are starting to accept requests for mail ballots. They call it a blatant attempt at voter suppression. In an appearance Sunday on CNN's State of the Union, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows appeared to back off Trump's veto threats from last week, saying the president is open to signing legislation that would ensure adequate postal funding to manage the surge of mail ballots this fall. Meadows also pledged that no more postal sorting machines will be taken off the line between now and November 3rd, insisting that the previous removals in recent weeks, which postal employees have been warning about were part of a plan that predated the Trump administration. But in that same interview, Meadows emphasized the president's concerns about ballot fraud, even though he was unable to point to evidence of widespread fraud. He said, quote, there's no evidence that there's not. The revelation on Friday that the Postal Service has warned 46 states that it cannot guarantee the delivery of all ballots in time to be counted under their current deadlines set off a cascade of public panic. 
Many voters said they were so alarmed that they're reconsidering their plans to cast mail ballots and plan to risk their health to go to the polls in person amid the pandemic to make sure their votes are counted. Joe Biden's campaign announced plans on Sunday to devote a substantial portion of the $280 million that's been reserved in ad time for the fall for education messages designed to walk voters through their options on how to cast ballots safely and securely. Bill McRaven, a retired Navy admiral and the former commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, who in that role oversaw the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, has an op-ed in our newspaper today that says Trump is not just actively working to undermine the Postal Service, but every major U.S. institution. Admiral McRaven writes that Trump has, quote, planted the seeds of doubt in the minds of many Americans that our institutions aren't functioning properly. And if the president doesn't trust the intelligence community, law enforcement, the press, the military, the Supreme Court, the medical professionals, election officials, and postal workers, then why should we? And if Americans stop believing in the system of institutions, then what is left but chaos? And who can bring order out of chaos? Only Trump. The Admiral concludes that this is the theme of every autocrat who ever seized power or tried to hold on to it. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, with the balloon drop scrapped and the cheering crowds banished, Democratic convention planners faced the grim prospect earlier this summer of throwing Biden a party in a pandemic without any apparent celebration. Faced with a complex problem, Democrats decided to go big, aiming for a solution that has more in common with Netflix, Facebook Live, and the cheering fan screens courtside in Orlando's NBA bubble than the C-SPAN-style cattle call typical of past national gatherings. Over four nights, starting today, a behind-the-scenes crew of about 400 with operation centers in New York, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, and Wilmington, Delaware, plans to broadcast to the nation hundreds of live feeds from people's living rooms, national monuments, and stages that have been set up around the country. That includes dozens of speakers who have been mailed video production kits with basic equipment such as microphones, lighting, and advanced routers so that they can produce and transmit their own shots. Other homebound delegates will be dialed in to quick feeds of the live speeches so that their real-time reactions can be broadcast to the country as if they were in the same room as the speakers. In two-hour nightly chunks, only one hour of which the broadcast networks have vowed to air, the live footage will be mixed in real time with a roughly equal share of pre-recorded performances, many documentaries, and speeches. Artists such as Billie Eilish, Prince Royce, and the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, now simply the Chicks, have already filmed videos of their acts. Voters picked to excite key demographic targets have also cut testimonials. For example, we'll hear from a Florida paramedic who emigrated from Mexico City and a former Trump voter from Pennsylvania. The Tuesday keynote speech, rather than elevating a solo political star the way it did for Barack Obama in 2004, will be given over to a montage of 18 young Democratic politicians across the country, including Stacey Abrams from Georgia. For a typically antiquated and long-winded event, the remade unconventional convention could set a new standard for these quadrennial gatherings, which have evolved since the 1960s from their roots as actual smoke-filled rooms where presidents were picked to suspenseless televised spectacles that even partisans struggled to justify watching. The new circus, to be sure, could also flop, especially if the broadcasting cable networks have their on-air talent talking over the carefully prepared set pieces and less partisan voters decide to dismiss the spectacle as an overlong propaganda film. 
In addition to ubiquitous online streaming options, broadcast networks are expected to give the event the 10 p.m. hour for each of the next four nights, while the cable networks say they'll be on the air for hours before and after the events. But how much of the feed is rebroadcast directly remains an open question. The length of a typical speech, about 10 minutes in a normal year, has been brought down to a couple of minutes or less for many speakers. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, gets 60 seconds. It's a nod to the changing media consumption trends and an attempt to speed up the proceedings to keep the audience. Biden will give a longer address on Thursday night when he accepts the Democratic presidential nomination from his hometown of Wilmington. His running mate, Kamala Harris, will speak from the same location, the Chase Center, on Wednesday after a speech by Obama. I'll be in Wilmington all week to cover the festivities. Number two, according to the CDC, the infection rate in children 17 and under has been increasing steadily from March through the end of July. While the virus is far more prevalent and severe among adults, the true incidence of infection in American children remains unknown because of a lack of widespread testing. But the new reminder from the government of children's vulnerability comes as the United States reports a seven-day average of more than 1,000 daily coronavirus-related deaths for the 21st straight day. Officials reported 1,220 new deaths on Sunday and 57,120 new infections. Public health experts stress that testing levels remain too low, and some states have been experiencing technical difficulties with their data collection. In an effort to make testing faster and cheaper, the FDA granted emergency use authorization on Saturday for a saliva-based coronavirus test that's been developed by researchers at Yale, which aims to reduce turnaround times in commercial laboratories. Now, for millions of kids, today is the first day of the new school year. One of the challenges is that online schooling is leaving millions of disconnected students far behind. A stunning number of young people are locked out of virtual classes because they lack high-speed internet service at home. In 2018, according to a study, Nearly 17 million kids lived in homes without high-speed internet, and more than 7 million did not have a single computer at home. This issue affects a disproportionately high percentage of Black, Latino, and Native American households, with nearly one-third of students lacking high-speed internet at home. Students in southern states and in rural communities were particularly overrepresented. In Mississippi and Arkansas, 40% of students lacked high-speed internet, 40%. In related news, seven months into this pandemic, frontline doctors have in many cases become experts in treating COVID, but they are experts without, for the most part, the most fundamental tool in medicine, solid evidence upon which to base their decision-making. Answers about treatments remain frustratingly elusive, with a handful of basic therapies supported by evidence and a messy and imperfect scramble to extract information about what works from what has been given to thousands of patients. Therapeutic regimens vary dramatically from hospital to hospital, and much of what is offered is supported by hints and hunches, what official treatment guidelines refer to as a knowledge gap. The NIH is about to launch a large randomized trial to formally test different doses of blood thinners, which have been widely used to treat blood clots caused by the virus. Blood plasma from people who have recovered has now been given to more than 60,000 COVID patients, but the evidence that it works is still only suggestive because there has still not been a placebo-controlled randomized trial. Number three, in the midst of a historic heat wave in the West right now, the mercury in Death Valley, California, surged on Sunday afternoon to a searing 130 degrees, possibly setting a world record for the highest temperature ever observed during the month of August. If the temperature is valid, 
It would also rank among the top three highest temperatures ever reliably measured on the planet at any time and may in fact be the highest. Death Valley famously holds the record for the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth, which is 134 degrees. That record was set on July 10th, 1913. However, it is very much in question. An extensive analysis conducted in 2016 by an expert on extreme weather data named Chris Burt concluded that it was essentially not possible from a meteorological perspective. Some climatologists consider a 129-degree reading recorded in Death Valley on June 30th, 2013, and another recorded in Kuwait in 2016, and another recorded in Pakistan in 2017, respectively, as the highest ever reliably measured temps on the planet. If only those readings are considered, then Sunday's 130-degree temperature would unseat them as the highest ever measured. The only two higher measurements include that disputed 1913 reading in Death Valley and a 131-degree reading from Kavili, Tunisia, on July 7, 1931 which is considered Africa's hottest temperature, but that also has some serious credibility issues. Death Valley is the lowest, driest, and hottest location in America. Furnace Creek, where its temperature is measured, sits 190 feet below sea level in the Mojave Desert of southeastern California. It is notorious for its blistering heat. In July 2018, for example, temps passed 120 degrees on 21 of the days that month. I went there with my dad as a kid when it was 124 degrees, and I'll never forget trying to run around in the sand dunes when it was that hot. But it gets crazier. The heat out west has intensified a rash of fires that have erupted in recent days. And they're not just your normal summer wildfire. A blaze between Redding, California and Reno, Nevada spawned a swarm of fire tornadoes, prompting what is believed to be the first ever fire tornado warning issued by the National Weather Service. It's that hot. Scientists have found that the intensity, duration, and frequency of heat waves worldwide are increasing due to human-caused climate change. Climate studies have concluded that climate change is having a serious effect on wildfire activity, especially in the West. The fourth national climate assessment, published by the Trump administration in 2018, warned that climate change has already increased the size of areas burned by wildfires by drying out forests and boosting the availability of fuel that powers the fires. That report estimated that the area burned by wildfires in the past decade was twice what it otherwise would have been without human-caused climate change. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, August 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.